Hey guys, it's Mike here from Good Bed. Welcome to the Mike It Up podcast. Do you want to know how COVID has impacted the mattress shopping journey? Well, we've got data as well as some qualitative insights to share on that front. So stick around. Welcome to Mike It Up with GoodBed.com's Jeff Cassidy. So when that's the case, it becomes harder just psychologically to make a change. And Mike Magnuson. If you're doing those things, you can be competitive long term. Just when you thought these number crunching data lovers couldn't get any nerdier, they started a podcast. And I know this is pretty controversial, but this is why we're having a podcast, right? But if you want to be smart about how the mattress shopping journey is changing and what retailers and manufacturers should be doing about it, well then, man, have you ever found your people? Because right now, it's time to mic it up. Some pretty cool. Some boss of mine sent them. Said I have to wear them because we're doing podcasting. Some crazy stuff yep. like that. The hazing ritual. Yeah, it's work. Uh, it's, it's working. <laughs> all right. Well, let's dive in. We're going to talk about uh, COVID today. COVID's obviously been a, a huge disruption to so many industries, but the mattress industry uh, has has not been excluded from that. And you know, it's funny to think back to March, uh, how we, you know, what we thought then. Can you even remember? I mean, I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like this industry is not going to sell another mattress this entire year. Yeah. That's what I was, that was my first concern. Because I mean, of course, historically, mattresses are a big discretionary purchase. And when times are tough, it's the kind of thing that you can always prolong for another day, you know? Right. Well, I... Also, I think it, me, just like everybody else, I wasn't thinking about anything like any purchase other than water and food. Uh, so, right, like taking it back. Oh my gosh, like the world is ending. So, exactly, yeah, and um, and so and certainly not one that would require you going into a store to the extent you deemed that to be part of how you would want to purchase that product. So, yeah, I was I was pretty worried that uh, that we were going to see just an absolutely abysmal year. Um, as it turned out, wow! I mean, it's been a total boon, and obviously we can all understand the reason for that with everyone's focus on the home. So it's been a really unusual economic kind of downturn in that respect. Uh, it's I think pretty much maybe the only economic downturn where we've seen the mattress industry kind of uh, actually see a surge. Um, but but I think more so than just understanding that point, and obviously people can understand um, that online retail has seen a bit of a, a, a surge. I think we want to dive a little deeper, a layer deeper into some of the underlying factors of why that is. I think that would be useful for people. And we've got some data on that. But but I was thinking maybe to start it off, we could give people a little bit of context a little on how we got here. Um, I think that would also be useful because we've been obviously been tracking these metrics for a long time now, uh, a lot of these metrics. Um, and so, for example, we do have this one metric that we ask people who are in the context of using GoodBed. Um, and so they're not taking a survey. They're actually kind of just using GoodBed to, to, as part of their mattress search um, or mattress research. And in that context, they're answering a question about do you feel the need to try your mattress before you buy it, you know, in a store? And they can say yes or no. And we've been asking that question of our users since 
Q3 of 2015. So Casper launches in early 2014. We didn't ask that question. We didn't start asking that question as a kind of in the ordinary course of people using our site for the first year or so. But but after that and ever since, we've asked that very consistently. Um, and pretty much when we started in Q3 of 2015, it was about 20%. That was the answer. 20% of people said uh, actually no to that question. That's, that's how I think of it because I think of it as a line that's going up and to the right. So the number of people who say no, they don't need to try it uh, is the number that has been increasing, uh, which is kind of a little bit confusing because the inverse of that, uh, yes, I need to try it is, has been obviously shrinking. So, but we'll think of it as a line that's going up and to the right. So no, I don't need to try it. Therefore I'm willing to buy online is, was 20% in Q3 of 2015, actually a little less than 20%. Uh, and by the way, for context, I do know kind of less statistically with less statistical significance that had we started asking that question earlier, it would surely have been well, well below. Yeah. Because we would have been almost we definitely zero had. a few years earlier. Pretty much. I mean, like I remember having conversations with users one on one and also asking that question in more of a survey form on our site. And the numbers were in the single digits. And when people did say yes, they'd be willing to in those kind of one on one conversations, it was more of the context that, yeah, I'd be willing to buy online without trying it, but only if uh, I'd already tried one that I that I knew was the same thing in a store. You know, like they're basically were saying, hey, if I, if I can get a name game type of model <laughs> that's the mm-hmm. same online as one I've tried in a store, mm-hmm. then sure, I'll buy it without trying it. Uh, but that's not really the same thing. Right. So... Um, and of course the return policies and everything in the industry, even for the ones who, the, the re- retailers who were selling online weren't as generous as, you know, what Casper kind of ushered in with their business model either. So there were other reasons I think why people weren't as comfortable, but, um, but for sure we know that that number was very low and starting in uh, about a year after Casper came on, it had already risen to those high teens or about 20% or close to 20%. And it basically steadily rose for those next couple of years up until um, kind of early 2018. And then it just kind of plateaued. It kind of hit just a, a saturation level where there was just no more people who were fundamentally going to be convinced by this kind of online marketing message to buy a mattress online without trying it in the store first. And that plateau level was about 43%. And it was just really uh, rigid there. It just kind of, it bounced around a little bit, you know, by a few points here or there on either side of that number, but it just was flat for two years. And what was really interesting is as we go back and kind of historically dissect this other data that we have from that same time period, we can see that in that two-year time period, uh, two to three-year time period where it was steadily rising between 2015 and 2018, uh, we saw the number of online brands just exploding. They were coming in at one per week, literally, for three straight years, as you recall. So uh, that kind of makes sense. The market essentially was expanding rapidly. The number of people, the addressable market for all these online brands was rapidly expanding. Um, and so while that was happening, brands are flooding in. And we saw very little attrition amongst those brands during that 
three-year time frame either. Like they were coming in, they were trying to make the best of it. We didn't see a lot of fall off. Um, but when we hit that plateau level, then in early 2018, all of a sudden, as we track these number of brands in the market and those that are kind of dropping out, we started to see it wasn't that new brands stopped coming in, but we definitely started to see brands falling off, uh, brands dying off. Um, and, and that was an interesting, so that actually caused the total number of brands to start to kind of plateau right around that time as well, or at least certainly slowed. Um, and eventually after like a year or two of that kind of plateauing of the willingness to buy online number, we actually started to see the number of online brands in the space start to fall. Um, and, and by the way, it's interesting that, um, steadily increasing willingness to buy without trying it seems looking back historically it makes sense like uh, it feels like it's always been that way but when you presented some of those numbers at the betting conference it was uh shocking to people so there was a, a long lag from um what people were expecting were the numbers to what was actually happening on the on, in the online space Exactly. Yeah, there were definitely points in time where we were presenting those numbers along the way where people were of the mindset or impression that maybe this was kind of a isolated phenomenon amongst millennials, you know, a few mm-hmm. a few kind of uh, e-commerce friendly subsets of the market that that were kind of willing to do this. Um, but but what quickly became apparent in the data we were collecting was it was much more widespread. And we can look at it now, we can look at it across age groups, because obviously that's another piece of data that we're, that people are sharing with us. Again, not in a survey form, just because they're trying to find the right mattress. And that's one of the criteria uh, that we, that we consider, but uh, we can stratify that, that data by age group and see that that trend has been super consistent across age groups. There is stratification as it relates to um, the, the, People of, of younger age groups, as you might expect, in general, that line is higher in terms of their willingness to buy without trying than the ones who are older. That's the lowest line. But the pattern in terms of the increase is the same. And um, so that, that's, been, that's been something we've seen from the very beginning and it's been super consistent. So, so that kind of takes us up until, oh, and I, I guess the other thing I should mention that's kind of interesting context, again, where we can go back and look at historical data and reconcile it against these other trends that we've seen, is that right around that time of early 2018, when that plateauing happened, coincides exactly with when we see the largest online brands start to dip their toe into the brick and mortar waters. Casper starts to open their owned and operated stores. I believe that that was probably around the time Nectar started to lay the groundwork for its brick and mortar distribution strategy, although they didn't come public with that for a little while after that. But but certainly by early 2019, they had. Um, And, you know, stores started to open up. Tuft and Needle started opening their owned and operated stores. They started to experiment with different you know, partners, Crate and Barrel or West Elm, those types of partnerships all started to come to fruition right around the time we started to see us hit that saturation point. So those large online brands were either anticipating this or were seeing similar things in their data that suggested to them 
that we're going to hit a saturation point and that in order to continue at the growth rates that we want to continue at, we're going to need a more omni-channel approach. There's going to be a segment of the market that we're just not going to be able to tap into if we don't. So that uh, takes us up kind of through early 2020 because that that 43% plateau number, it's it's stuck hard there right up through early part of 2020. So for two solid years, it didn't move, which convinced me that this was a really hard number, hard ceiling, that obviously it's going to creep up over time, but really more only because as you know, with each passing year, you're going to have younger people move into the market for a mattress. Older people will have bought their last mattress. And, you know, with that generational turnover, you'll see a slight increase over time. But that's a, a relatively small, if you think about it, that's a very slow increase that you're not going to uh, barely be able to see even on a year-over-year basis. So that's kind of where I thought we were we were at with this whole thing. And I thought, wow, this is going to be a great year for brick and mortar because we kind of have finally seen uh, a a little bit of inflection here, uh, an ebbing, some kind of some kind of ceiling or or just curbing of the growth that has been otherwise unabated in terms of the online guys and the share that they've been able to steal. And then, of course, COVID. And again, that 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 plateau was, again, how long of a total amount of time at that plateau? Two years. Forty three percent. That was two, two full years. years. Two full years. Time. Yeah, it's, it's long enough to feel very confident that we had some statistical significance. And by the way, every data point we put on that uh, chart, you know, that, that or, or I should say across that full two year period, we're talking about many tens of thousands of data points. And so every mm-hmm. data point that we plot on a line is one month of data, which has thousands in its own right of, of, uh, of users and their responses in that data. So it's definitely well beyond any kind of statistical significance levels. And so then COVID hits and obviously catches the entire world by surprise. And just to clarify, the reason we spent that time up front explaining the history of what led us into the COVID period is I think it's important context to have to appreciate both the significance of that number, that percentage of people who buy, who are willing to buy without trying, because it affects everything from the number of players in the market to uh, play the online players moving into a more omni-channel strategy. It's driving a lot of things, so it's important to understand the the significance of that number as well as where that number had been going into COVID and what it had been doing. And when COVID hits, uh, basically that we see the impact of COVID in that number immediately. So it immediately spikes up, uh, starts to spike up in March. By April, it peaks at 71%. So again, having been flat at 43 for two years and looking like it's going to be more or less at that level, kind of ad infinitum, it now spikes up in the span of 30 days to 71%, which really speaks to just people's change of mindset in the the, uh, light of this pandemic. So... It, it does settle down. If you recall, May, May was a, ultimately a good month, especially the latter part of May. It was a good month for the whole industry, but particularly was good for brick and, metal, uh, brick and mortar retailers. 
So it had come down by by May, and then certainly June, it had come back down to a more uh, steady state level, but it was not back to 43%. It had come down to about 53%. And really what happened in the months since then is it's more or less stayed at that level. Uh, it's it's come down just a tick or two, but it's still a solid eight, nine, close to 10 points higher than it was for what seemed like would be forever. And that to me is a massive lasting legacy of COVID. I see it as the kind of thing that is analogous to what we've observed with so many other facets of our lives, how COVID has affected it. I mean, video conferencing being a perfect example, we're on a video call right now. Now you and I have been doing video calls for many, many years, but we now do video calls in the course of our just ordinary business that previously would have been phone calls or in-person visits and never in a million years would have been a video call because it just would have felt weird. Now we're kind of, as a society, just over that. And we do video calls with our friends more. We do video calls for work more. Uh, and that's just going to stay, I think. I don't see that going away in the post-COVID world. And likewise, the degree to which we rely on e-commerce for everything from you know, uh, groceries, like typical more mundane type errand stuff that we didn't usually previously rely on e-commerce to, you know, just uh, stuff you would get from a hardware store normally, just anything that we would have previously not necessarily thought to look online for. There's a whole lot of that we now do think to look online for. And again, I think there's going to be a lasting impact of that. And, and I think this is going to be similar. So there's going to be just a, a degree to which this is ultimately in the annals of history, a step function change up in terms of people's willingness to, to buy online and buy without trying in a store first. So, and the other area where we can uh, sort of see less, less readily measurable data, but certainly data nonetheless in another form is the extent to which people's research journey is happening online during COVID. I mean, we already knew before COVID that probably 80% of people, if not, no, it's probably more like 90% of people research their mattress online at some point during their process. That was, we already had a really high level of saturation there, but so now it's a hundred percent, right? Now that I don't think there's anybody who doesn't spend at least some amount of time researching their mattress online as part of that process. And much more significantly, I think the portion of the decision-making journey that's happening online, we've seen go up significantly during COVID. And that's really where we had more upside because in the past, they might do some research online, but it could be just one step of their journey. You know, it could be, oh, I'm gonna do a little bit of confirmatory research, read some reviews, make sure it's not trash. Or I'm going to do a little bit of upfront research, just educate myself about the different types before I go into a store. But, but their intent, or at least the result of their process, would be that a good portion of their decision-making journey was happening in the store. They're spending a lot of time in the store being educated or educating themselves. They may be going to multiple stores, getting multiple perspectives from different people and, and different experiences in those stores. That is happening much, much less, obviously. And the 
it's so as a result the portion of the journey that's happening online is much much higher and they are it's not just by default it's not that the amount of time that they're researching this purchase is 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 lower uh so that it's also that they're they're actually increasing the amount of time they're spending online to compensate for the the loss of time they're able to spend in stores as, as part of that journey and again i think that while while some of that is going to be prove temporary there's going to be a, for sure a residual lasting impact there that's that mm-hmm. seems clear so that is kind of the fundamental like biggest impacts and, and we see it in other forms of data too i mean we definitely see it in in, in Google Trends data, for example, you know, we, we saw for sure that searches for online brands popped a lot more in those early days of the pandemic. Um, we saw, we see searches for, you know, we, we often look at this uh, best mattress is kind of an online searching phenomenon. And that, that has popped a lot. Um, and, and that kind of leads me to one of the other implications of this for retailers. I mean, in general, the implications for retailers are are that you are going to be a little bit, you're going to have to be found online. You can't rely on the fact that you have a convenience store location that's on a busy street that people pass by all the time. Um, and again, this is not just in the COVID time period. This goes beyond you are going to have to be found online because increasingly that's where people are not only starting their journey, but that's increasingly where a a, a higher and higher portion of their decision is being made. And that step that's taking place in the store is becoming more of that confirmatory step. So your, your journey with that consumer has to begin on your website. So that's, that's one implication that your website has to provide more information to them. That's going to be along the lines of the type of information that will help them make a decision. More, right? more information, more information, and uh, well-presented information. To your point earlier about um, before, when more people, a higher percentage of people, would start their journey in the store, or they would be assuming they're going to buy in a store, they might go to multiple stores, physical right. stores. Yeah. Now those those same people who had that same desire to get multiple data points they would have gone to multiple physical stores now they go to multiple websites um right. and the we see this also in people calling in to goodbed or people emailing in to goodbed um a lot more of that is happening than before and some of the uh, it, some of those people are older people and they're not as comfortable online but they're forced to do it now they feel like they're forced to do it now and they, some of them have a harder time navigating websites. So I think not only being found, but also having a website that's um, helpful, that's easy to understand, that's easy to navigate, that's easy for me to get to the information that I want about a product. That's even more important than before. Because that's right. They're go- they're gonna find websites that are very very good, and. That's part of their the sales process now is how well can I navigate that sales that that website? How well do you help me with my uh, education process on your website in a in a quick, easy, and efficient way for people who maybe weren't as internet savvy 
as yeah. well. Yeah, so to kind of boil it down, maybe even more succinctly, more, of, <laughs> more no, no, not, believe me, your part was way more succinct than mine. <laughs> so I'm not casting stones. I'm saying more succinctly to cover all the ground that we've covered in this whole episode so far, or to kind of sum it up to where we've gotten to this point, it would be more people are starting their journey online, more people are comfortable buying, ultimately concluding their journey without having the ability to try a mattress in a store without buying it, and more of the decision-making that's going into that process that, that ultimate decision of more of the information seeking and and, and uh fi- ultimately the the factors that lead to a decision are happening online and as a result of those three key dynamics and and again we believe that there's those are not temporary there's there's a degree to which the the the, the pop is temporary but there will be a residual effect that is lasting uh, and as a result of those things, retailers need to do two key things, like to your point. They need to not only be found online, because that's where people are starting and that's where people are deciding, but also the information that they provide online through their website needs to be better to help people make that decision, get people closer to that decision point, because that's what people are, are doing. They're, they're getting closer to that decision point online. And if they can't do it on your website, they'll do it on somebody else's. So mm-hmm. those are the kind of two key factors. Um, and by the way, that first factor uh, is one, you know, I, I described that. I've, I think this is a, 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 a helpful rubric to think about is for all the great things retailers focus on in providing their cons- customers with a great experience, you can't provide consumers with a great experience if they never find you. Mm-hmm. And so that's that those are those are some key things. And by the way, there are some pretty nasty headwinds facing retailers as it relates to being found online in today's environment. And we've touched on this and we will we will come back to this topic in future episodes for sure, but one of the biggest of those headwinds is spammy review sites. That is a huge headwind because those guys, their whole, their only expertise in the world is showing up highly in Google, essentially tricking Google into thinking that they are a, a helpful, authoritative, trustworthy resource for consumers. And they're darn good at it, but also they go to very, if not illegal lengths, then certainly illicit lengths to do that, to, to show up highly. And that like you said, is... That's- unfair that's a topic for multiple episodes it is for sure a topic that that deserves multiple episodes because it's one that we can we can really unwrap and, and help retailers understand both the impact of it on them but also what are some things they can do about it um so yes we'll come back to that for sure but i just want to place mark that as one of the challenges one of the real clear challenges that retailers are facing is as it relates to being found online today and going forward. So that's kind of the key. And we're going to come back. I'm going to tease our next episode. We're going to talk more. Uh, next episode, we're going to talk about this, this question that gets batted around of, is retail, brick and mortar retail, walking dead? Um, and, you know, a small spoiler, I don't think it's walking dead at all. But 
and I and I think anyone listening to this would probably, if you if you've heard me speak before, you would know that. But I'm going to tell you why I think that, and it, and it's going to come with some strings. It's going to come with some strings about uh, sort of it's not they're not Walking Dead, provided that they do some things, because it's it's definitely the 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 future is not the same as the past here. It's not going to look exactly like the past. So there's going to have to be some change to adapt. Uh, but I definitely believe there is a future for, for brick-and-mortar retail. Um, but I'm going to talk about that and obviously the, the sort of what can you do about this post-COVID world as a retailer. Some of that is going to get, uh, will be, that will be a good venue for us to talk about some of that. So uh, if you're wondering why we're not going to get into that in this episode, we're keeping this content snackable. It might have ended up being a, a couple of snacks today. But I think maybe we'll, to your point earlier, to your point earlier, I hope you I didn't eat anything we'll before you listen to this because <laughs> <laughs> or, or consume any other information, because otherwise you might be really full. Yeah. Or done anything entertaining because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you did consume anything entertaining prior to watching this, then this will pale in comparison. No question. But hopefully. <laughs> You've been deprived of any kind of entertainment, and therefore, this really stands out as, as uh, uh, exceptional in your mind. All right, wait, wait. Before before we go, let's pick up real quick on something that you t- that you mentioned uh, in the first episode, which is your background and your history with um, with podcasting. Maybe okay. just pick, pick back up on that real quick. I'll pick bit. back up on that. I'll just tell a little bit of that story so we can kind of spread it out over these first few episodes, and it doesn't become an episode of its own. But uh, yeah, the, I had been previous to starting Goodbit. I was working in finance. I was a private equity investor, as you know, uh, focused on media, marketing services, types of investments. I was kind of at the intersection of, of private equity as well as venture capital, kind of right in that in-between area where uh, I was looking at some forward-thinking types of theses. And one of those forward-thinking investment theses that I had was that um, there was an opportunity for spoken word audio content that was going to be that was going to make spoken word audio content more valuable. What I was seeing was we had more and more people who had devices on their person that were capable of storing that type of content and playing it. Uh, we had more and more of a stronger networks. This was, by the way, the time frame here was 2003, 2004 that I was kind of that developed this thesis. Um, I was even even earlier than we thought. I know. I looked time. it up because I, I wanted to see. It, it was uh, it, I said 2006 last episode, and it, it was actually well before that. It was the 2003-04 time frame, and uh, you know, seeing that iPods were kind of a thing at that point, and there were at that point in time we didn't have iPhones. This is way way before iPhones, but we had iPods, and we had increasingly the ability to download content more quickly to those iPods. So I was seeing the people were able to sync their iPods quickly and then take them with them in the car, for example. And I was anticipating that eventually iPods would have some way of connecting wirelessly to data. You know, I didn't necessarily anticipate the iPhone per se, but like I knew that there would be, you wouldn't ultimately have to sync your iPod to a computer every time you wanted to grab new content onto it. So I knew that that type of thing was coming and that that there was going to be uh, always a need for people to consume audio content, right? That there's a certain amount of time people spend in their car, for example, or doing other things where they, they can't be watching video, but they're still going to want to be uh, informed or entertained and what have you. 
And at the same time, of course, we were all getting more and more accustomed to asynchronous programming, meaning like watching things when we want to watch them, watching what we want to watch, when we want to watch it. It started with DVRs is kind of like when that started. And that was all happening. You know, TiVo goes back to the late 90s. And by the time this 2003, 2004 time frame was coming around, it was it was becoming more and more uh, accepted by a wider portion of the population that people are just getting used to it. Like, I don't want to just turn on the radio and see what's on. I want to listen to what I want to listen to right when for that time that I'm in my car and maximize the information or entertainment that I'm getting during that time. So I just anticipated that these things were going to be coming. And I felt like there's an opportunity for um, audio spoken word content to increase in value because it's going to have so much more demand, good, good content will have so much more demand and uh, than, than it ever had before, at least in the recent years. So I was looking at even buying into Westwood One Radio or, you know, looking at libraries of King Biscuit Flower Hour and just trying to find uh, trying to find opportunities to put money to work in helping in, 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 in finding good spoken word audio content. And that was kind of my thesis. And uh, that's what I was actively working on. Or one of the things I was actively working on in that uh, 2003, 2004 time frame. And, and this was all before the term podcasting had ever really been coined. So we can continue that story uh, in the next episode. Yeah. Other interesting background for a future time, not now, is one of your other theses during that part of your life, which involved mattresses. So more on that true. to come in the future, too. Very true. All right, good. Well, we appreciate you guys listening, if anyone is listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Your mom and my mom. Exactly. They're, they're hey, mom. Hey, mom. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if you do like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe with whatever medium you're using and, and leave us a review. We'd love it. That helps other people find the podcast. So in the meantime, mic it up. We're out. 